The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're now going to uh, turn to the book of Luke. If you have a Bible, it's great. If you don't, we got all the verses will be up on the screen. Um, As is usual for us, uh, if you have any questions uh, during the sermon, you can text them if you feel uncomfortable raising your hand. If you have a question, you feel comfortable raising your hand, you can ask. Uh, we usually do Q&A after the sermon. So we are now through um, the ministry of uh, John the Baptist, and we're at the end of uh, Luke chapter 3. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read. We're going to be looking at Luke 3, 21 through Uh, chapter 4, verse 12. In the middle is a long genealogy of Jesus' family. Uh, I am going to skip over that for reading purposes, mainly because last week I proved that I can't pronounce all of these names on the spot very well. And um, we're just going to kind of stick to the main narrative portion here. So uh, that being said, I'm going to read starting in 21, and then we're going to skip over to uh, chapter 4. Now, when all the people were being baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when, he, when they were at their end, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Father, as we look at your word and begin the ministry of Jesus, we ask that you would help us to hear your song over us, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased that you say to us in Jesus. And I pray that as we look at these words this morning, that your spirit would teach us what it means to be disciples who follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, over the last few years, uh, certainly the pandemic has been going on, obviously, but there's been a lot of kind of cultural things that have been happening. Um, in the background for some of us, but in the forefront for others, there's been the Black Lives Matter movement that kind of 
took shape um, in a more prominent form, uh, what was it, June 2020? I can't remember the exact date, but basically the weekend after George Floyd's murder. Right. So the average since then, uh, Black Lives Matter has taken um, many forms, uh, become more prominent. We've obviously had a chapter here in Manchester. And out of that, um, even in a city like ours, which is currently, if I recall correctly, around 75 percent uh, Caucasian, um, there are um, within our community uh, folks who are supported that of, of the Black Lives Matter going to the protests but they are themselves uh, not uh, African-American people. Um, and the term that we end up using within that vernacular are um, advocates, but I think more the, the more kind of accurate term is those who feel, uh, who are protesting in solidarity. Um, people who are allies, but I think solidarity is a good word to use when folks who are not uh, black themselves are showing up for the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, solidarity is one of these words I, I want to kind of pull on. And the, re the reason I, I bring all this up, because it relates to our passage today. Uh, solidarity is a word that I would like for us to kind of recover in our usage, um, to kind of have more in our forefront of our minds. Uh, one of the things that the word does for us is it's a way of acknowledging people have different experiences than ours, different experiences that are largely marked with suffering and pain and ways in which we can affirm their right for justice and affirmation, right? But the, the, the word also has its own limits, right? I recognize that I am a uh, late 30s um, white male. There are limits to the amount of solidarity that I can experience with my black neighbors, right? I can't take on their experience to the full extent. I can listen and believe, but I can't be the one who experiences all of what it means to be them in their moment. I want you to have that in your mind as I read over verse, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 again. This idea that we can take on and acknowledge hum, uh, the human suffering of others, but have it to a limit. And have that in mind when God comes to our pain and suffering, when God comes to see our sin and death in our lives, what's going on in the baptism of Jesus? Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also was, had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you... I am well pleased. Right. What's happening here in this moment is, uh, is this kind of what we call apocalyptic uh, story in the Bible. Um, apocalyptic really just means we get God's perspective on our lives. Uh, here, the heavens open up. They rend open. Like this is not like a big kind of like a big storm passes and suddenly the sky is really bright. Like there's some sort of spiritual dynamic where this, the, the, the veil of heaven is kind of ripped open, so to speak, and you see God's perspective on what's happening with Jesus. And God's heart towards Jesus is, here is my son, the one whom I am well pleased. This is the son of God taking on human form. He delights in all of who Jesus is. This is my beloved only son, and I delight in him. But context matters. 
God could have done this at any other point. And yet here Jesus is on the banks of a river where people are purifying themselves, kind of recommitting their lives to God, repenting of sin, being baptized for the forgiveness of sin, recommitting their lives to God. Jesus does not need to do any of that, right? Jesus doesn't need to commit his life to God again. Jesus does not need to repent of sin. Jesus doesn't have to do any of that. And yet he is being baptized. He is praying, committing his life to God. He's doing so in solidarity with the very people that he came to save. Right? He is sitting in a context filled with people who are broken by their sin, broken by death in their lives, broken by the power of the enemy in their lives. They are people who are expressing this heartbreaking reality of this is what it means to be human. I am a broken person in need of a Savior. And yet here is the Savior Himself among them. That is what God is acknowledging. Not merely that Jesus is who He loves, but the context of who Jesus is and the way He expresses it. So this is God's, what we call for the sermon, God's radical solidarity with us. God's radical solidarity is not limited like mine with my neighbors who I may be in solidarity with. God takes on human form and lives among us amidst all the dynamics of what it means to be human with a fully pleasing identity to who God is, right? God knows him and loves him. Jesus has nothing to be ashamed about with God, right? He has nothing in his back closet that he has to hide. He is fully known, fully loved. He lives out of that in identifying with people in solidarity, who are marked by sin and death. And then by doing so, He marks a path for us to enjoy that same delight from the Father in who we are before Him. Right. So, one of the things we're going to see in this passage, you notice there, the Holy Spirit, verse 22, descended on Him in bodily form. And again, in chapter 4, verse 1, and when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit marks Jesus' life and identity of kind of like the tangible presence of God in his life, this mark of new, of new blessing in Jesus' life. Uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts go hand in hand together. And every time that God works through his people in a new way or kind of a fresh movement of God in the book of Acts, um, there are two things that happen here in this passage that happen there. Prayer and the Holy Spirit. There's six times. It's actually why the book of of Acts is kind of typically kind of marked as like seven chapters long or six chapters long. They're praying and the Holy Spirit comes and then God does something new through them. That begins here with Jesus. Jesus is praying, the Holy Spirit comes, and he proves his identity in God. So what we're going to see in the temptations of Jesus is how he lives out of this identity and being loved by God in solidarity with us, by pe- with people who are marked by sin and temptation and death, so that he begins a path for us to follow him in a life where we begin to say no to our temptations in a Jesus-centered way. Are we tracking? We- okay. I realize that's a lot of kind of content to gather. If you got questions, you got the number at the bottom of all the slides, you can say, Jacob, it didn't make any sense, and I can speak back to that, okay? All right, here's what we're going to do. 
main point of this passage is God delights in Jesus' solidarity with us so that our identity in Him is secured by His love. So we're going to kind of be talking about three different identity markers as we work through Jesus' temptations. So the first one we're going to talk about is our identity is either orphaned or fathered. Verses 1 to 4, these are the very kind of historic kind of three temptations of Christ. We're going to pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, just a comment, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is language similar to the Old Testament, right, where the people of Israel were in the desert for 40 years. Moses was in the desert for 40 years. 40 is a big number. Moses was on the mount getting the law of God for 40 days. Right, 40 becomes a big number of testing. So that's kind of the context here. And the wilderness language, wilderness is just the same type of term for uh, when the people of Israel left Egypt, they were in the wilderness for those 40 years. Again, it's all to kind of make us recognize God, this is a special moment of temptation. And he ate nothing for those days. So he was fasting for 40 days. Anybody here fasted for 40 days? Okay, I just want to make sure that, like, this is a normal room of spiritual people, like, not like, I mean, you got like ultra marathoners, you know? <laughs> like, if you're like an ultra faster, please talk to me because. There ain't no way I'm, I'm fasting for 40 days. I mean, unless there's like some, I get a handwritten letter from, I don't know, Joseph or Mary or Jesus or somebody. The devil said to him, if you, I'm sorry, and he ate nothing for 40 days. And when he, when they were ended, he was hungry. No kidding. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So, you have the beginning of these temptations. The devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, do this. And as you'll see in the other temptations, um, Lucifer or Satan knows his Bible, so he tends to be quoting the Bible himself. Again, to speak to those 40 days, these sort of Bible quotations, Satan's quotations and Jesus' quotations all come from the book of Deuteronomy, which are basically five sermons on the temptations that the people of Israel faced in the desert. So when, when Satan's bringing temp, uh, temptations to Jesus, he's doing it as what would, we would kind of suspect as a friend with the Bible in the hand. But Jesus has heard the voice of love over him, and he knows his father's care for him. What is the temptation that Jesus is facing? Right, We have here at the end of verse 2, he was hungry, right? No kidding. No food for 40 days. I assume he was drinking water at least. 40 days of water, no food. He was hungry for sure. It's natural to want to eat in that context, I would say, to say the least, right? Uh, if I go for food without a few for a few hours, let alone a few days, uh, I don't know the worst type of fast food has, is just going to appeal. I'll, I'll pull over. Like, it's, I'm going to be hungry. But is food really the temptation that Jesus is being faced with here? Right? Satan is saying to him, you can turn to this. I know who you are. Like, I, I'm not like all these other people. I know that you're the Son of God who can change this rock into a loaf of bread to satisfy your hunger. 
I know who you are. I know that you, this desire in you for hunger, why bother with all of this pain of hunger? Just take this rock, flip it, and now you got a loaf of bread, right? You don't even have to go to a market basket, right? But food is not really the issue here. See, by Jesus feeling hunger, he's experiencing in an extreme form what his humanity is designed to experience, right? You go without food for a few days. It's natural for you to feel hungry. You shouldn't feel ashamed of wanting food. The desires that Jesus is experiencing here are the natural desires that all of us experience. Good desires that God, that God has made us with to be satisfied with good things as God's designed to work. But the temptation here is a subtle one. If you are the Son of God, can you just kind of feel a little bit of the edge in when we read this? If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. You see, he's trying to take Jesus' good desire and flip it over Jesus being the loved Son. He's trying to basically say, God made you with these desires and he's not satisfying you. Why don't you get rid of this father and just take care of this on your own? Basically, Jesus, God's doing a terrible job of being your dad. Why don't you strike a, a new path on your own? Your desires are good. This pain is a problem. Jesus is being tem- tempted functionally to become an orphan, to not have a father anymore to not need the Lord to provide for him and to be on his own without God's protection or provision. Feeling hungry or any pain of delay, that's what Satan is saying. Fix it now. God's the problem. You see, we are made in our humanity with tons of good desires, whether that's food or sex or clothes or hunger or work, or meaning, none of those things are bad, right? None of them are terrible. Like They're all good things that God's made. But God's made them for us to enjoy them in His timing and purpose and measure in our lives, right? We don't look at this passage and say, well, you know what? If God wants my electric bill to be paid by the end of the month, He's just going to pay it. I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything. That's not the work is a good way of paying our bills, (laughs) But what this passage might be saying is deceptive work is not the way to pay our bills. Right? The temptation is, well, I pursue this good, this good desire for me as a child of God, or will I pursue this good desire as an orphan without God's help or leading? I think that's a good question to consider when we're facing our temptations. There's a good desire whether it's food, I mean, we keep talking about food because it's in the passage. Whatever the temptation is, if it's a good desire, right, can I trust that God will provide for me as I work hard in being faithful to Him, that He will take care of me? We can do that as an orphan on our own, or we can do that as somebody who hears the heart of God's love and delight over us. All right. You got more questions, we can pick up in verse 5. Second identity marker that we're going to kind of talk about here in Jesus' solidarity with us is that our identity is either magnified or crucified. Second temptation of Christ. 
Verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God uh, you shall worship the, I'm sorry, I was skipping the third temptation. And you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Again, the physical context of this situation matters, right? And the, the physical context of Jesus' first temptation is his suffering. The physical temptation here is Jesus is the one who will start a new humanity through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the the new Adam, so to speak. He is the one that everything new of God's purposes will start. And Satan recognizes that about him. And so he says, you know what? If you're going to rule the kingdoms of the earth, let me take you to kind of like my control panel over all of the world. And let me just kind of show you what I see. And let me show you all these kingdoms. And let me show you what type of glory and power you are actually signing up for. So he takes them there. I don't know what it's like, frankly, to be in this situation. I mean, unless one of you has experienced this where you're like, I guess the closest would be like going to the Oval Office, but that's not like the same thing because like I assume there's not actually like a red button to launch nukes or something like that there. Like, I don't know. Sorry. Like anybody watch the West Wing? Like you get like you go to the basement to go to the, the, to the control stuff. I can't imagine what a situation like is similar to this. But you get what I'm kind of getting at, right? A control panel, you see everything in the world, the authority, glory that Jesus is due, right? He will receive these things. So what's the temptation here? I think the temptation is for Jesus to be recognized for who he is. Jesus will be the one at the end of the book of Luke And at the beginning of the book of Acts, all authority was given to me. He will say those words over every kingdom. All authority has been given to Jesus. So he will say that. But Satan is basically saying, let's do a choose your own adventure. uh, God's path or your path. And your path could be without all the pain and suffering. Let's, Let's get around the pain and suffering in the middle. Satan's temptation is to say that he could skip the suffering and get the glory effectively that in order for us to be recognized by God, in order for Jesus to be recognized by God, it's a problem to suffer. I don't know if you guys remember, about a year, nine, ten months ago, we had Rachel uh, Denhoinder here uh, in our church to speak about um, how Jesus fits into her story of being a survivor of abuse and uh, pursuing justice. One of the questions at the end that we had about an hour and a half of Q&A in that, and one of the questions that we got uh, from our, one of our neighbors is, you basically keep talking about suffering like it's not something to avoid. Like suffering is a part of life, and how did you overcome avoiding suffering? Because, I mean, obviously there's a certain level of suffering that she experienced in her past, but then pursuing justice was just kind of like inviting more suffering into her life. I think a lot of us have this innate 
experience that suffering means something's wrong. We need to avoid it and we need to get out of this moment and get recognized for who we are. We need to get the recognition that we're deserved, but suffering is a part of the problem and we need to get that out of the picture. It's important to Jesus' ministry that he does not exempt himself from walking straight into the face of suffering. As a part of his identity, as uh, identifying with us and being the Son of God. Right? We all wish that there was just kind of like a, um, a monopoly, right? Pass go, collect $200, pass suffering, collect a recognition, that type of thing. It's important here to the ministry and life of who Jesus is that he chooses suffering over being magnified early. He chooses to walk into the face of his family misunderstanding him, his friends betraying him, his religious leaders opposing him, the state using him as a political pawn. You kind of go down the list, uh, being, you know, even if, ironically here to the story, Jesus is fasting for 40 days. Later in his ministry, he'll so identify and be among people who need God's help that he'll be accused of being an alcoholic. Jesus, you spend so much time around people who are eating and feasting, you must have a problem with alcohol yourself. Jesus is like, no, I don't, but I just love these people, right? He will be so misunderstood, so why not just be recognized now? Our humanity and experience of suffering in all its components is the type of solidarity that Jesus chooses with us. There is, in fact, what Jesus is saying here, there is purpose and meaning, not just because of suffering, but through suffering. We are invited, when we walk in Jesus, to be people in each of our own life experiences, whatever suffering looks like for you, whether it's physical, whether it's surviving something, whether it's just circumstantial with your work or family, whatever that is, we are invited to be a child of God in that moment, experiencing that suffering, and finding purpose in it. Our Christmas uh, Eve text, can, I, can we throw up the next slide? Our Christmas Eve text was Hebrews 2. I think we experience uh, what we're seeing here in Luke in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is speaking of Jesus' incarnation. He took on flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Right here is the devil from our very passage. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For sure, it is not for angels that he helps, but it helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be, make, be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? When we experience all types of suffering in our lives, the temptation is to say, if only I could just be shown to be proven right. If only I could just be recognized for who I am. If only I could get out of this. If only I could get rid of these desires, whatever it is. That verse speaks to what Jesus is going through here. Your suffering is not wasted. 
when you walk in Jesus, even if you're floundering, even if you're just kind of like languishing in Jesus. He is with you in it, and you're never alone. You are still somebody that God delights in, in the midst of suffering that does not make sense. All right, last temptation, and then we'll kind of turn to questions. We've talked about two kind of identity markers. The third one, our identity is either right or rescued. Verse 9 to 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, this sort of undermining, if you're the son of God, either or sort of language from the devil himself, throw yourself from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the the Lord your God to the test. So he takes him to the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, the highest part. And he says to Jesus, um, look, why don't you skip past all, not only just this magnifying or crucified stuff being recognized, but why don't you just... um, why don't you just take over the temple now? Why don't you just, I mean, angels were to show up and deliver him. He would immediately be ushered in as the, the, the Messiah, be given the king, you know, be made king. He would be made high priest of the temple. He would have been put in place. Right? Jesus, for his part, he recognizes, I'm not sure exactly how Jesus is aware of, of, of some, some things, but he knows that in himself, he, will, he himself will be the new temple, right? This building that he's standing on is about to, it's got an expiration date and it's about three years away from going to being meaningless in the way people worship God. Jesus himself will be where people meet God face to face. He himself will be the sacrificial lamb. He himself will be the one who makes, as our verses earlier talked about, be the one who is their high priest, our high priest, and goes into God's presence and brings grace to us and brings us into God's presence himself. He is going to be this place. And yet he also recognizes that he's standing on top of a building where he himself will be misunderstood, falsely accused, and sentenced to death. This is the very place where Jesus will be sent to crucifixion. This is the place where Jesus will be betrayed and, and uh, sacrifice, uh, sent to sacrifice by his own nation. This is the place where Jesus will experience the fullness of what it means to be the Son of God to die in our place. You see, the temptation that Jesus is being offered. Jesus, I know you're right, says Satan. I I know that you're going to be the new guy in charge. So why don't you just skip past all of those inconveniences and just prove that you're right? I mean, how many of us dwell and obsess on the ways in which we just wish that we were proven right? Here's Jesus giving the ultimate time, right? I know I have, I can't be the only person who relives arguments or conversations in my head of like all the things that, man, if I had just thrown out that one liner, they would have recognized that sort of, I, I know I'm not the only one, but you don't have to raise your hand if you are somebody like me and relives arguments all the time to prove that you were right. 
You see, Jesus is experiencing that very moment in the nth degree because the reality is that had I said that one-liner, I certainly not only would I have not been right, but I don't even know if I would have won the argument. <laughs> like, I, in my head, the audience is like, oh, yes, Jacob, you're so smart. But who knows? But here, I mean, Jesus is Jesus, right? There, he knows not only what it's like to know that he could say the right thing, but he knows exactly how it would have played out. He would have been right. But if he had been right and skipped past all of the inconvenience of being misunderstood, um, outcast by his nation, sent to the cross, and died in our place, he would not have actually rescued us from the power of sin and death in our lives. He would have been right without the rescue. And the rescue is the essential part of his solidarity with us. He walks right into the heart of the fullness of what it means to be us and takes every part of that on himself so that in the fullness of our humanity, he can experience the power of sin and death to its final degree and walk us into the land of freedom, of grace, and of infinite mercy. See, that's why Jesus refuses the temptation. It's not because he's not right, but it's because he is here to rescue us. And in the midst of all of these temptations, can I remind you, he was still God's beloved son. Okay. For you and me, this week, I want to remind you, Jesus is praying, filled with the Spirit, and goes out on mission. In the book of Acts, six times, the church, praying, filled with the Holy Spirit, joining God's work. So you this week, I don't know what the temptations are going to be for us. I don't know what the temptations are going to be for you. I don't know what suffering you're experiencing. I don't know the arguments that you're having in your head where you wish you were just proven right. I don't know what the good desires are that you're wrestling with, that you're trying to figure out how to manage. I don't need to, though. Jesus is aware. Jesus sees those things. And what this passage does for you is it says that you have an identity in Jesus that is so secured in the heart of God's love for you that the temptations that Jesus faced, the power of sin, death, and the devil cannot suppress or shake His love for you. So that, as you face whatever those temptations are this week, big, small, you're not alone. You have somebody with you in them. You have Jesus with you who has conquered them. And then, of all things, chooses to continue to walk with us so that we have mercy and grace in every moment of need. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this passage and considered the temptations of Jesus, I pray that your delight in us because of Jesus' solidarity with us would more firmly root our security in him. That we would experience your delight in us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.